appreciate you staying with us. I thought the first panel went very, very well. They were to speak about um, the origins and purpose of NAFTA. They did a little of that. And they also, as expected, drifted into some of the other topics that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, things that are really going on. It's more meaty and juicier. So here we're to talk about, uh, about the debate over NAFTA. And uh, I think you'll be... Uh, uh, I'm not going to introduce our speakers. The, the bios are in the, the, the uh, packet that you have. But just so you know who everybody is, uh, over, there's, over there is Steve Charnovitz from George Washington University Law School. Dan Griswold, uh, next to him. He's from the Mercatus Center. Uh, we have Marta Bengoa from the City College of New York. I'm Dan Eikenson. Alvaro Santos from Georgetown University Law Center. Todd Tucker from the Roosevelt Institute. And Christopher Wilson from the Wilson Center. <laughs> Wilson Center. So the debate over NAFTA has been going on for a long time. 25 years, and it rages from time to time during presidential elections, uh, when other trade negotiations are going on. Uh, lots, of, lots of facts and lots of fiction is marshaled in, in these debates, and I think here we're going to have an opportunity to maybe address some of the, uh, the points of contention that have existed since the beginning uh, and that have morphed into uh, new rounds of, of objections uh, to the NAFTA. We're going to talk about the things that were good about it. Uh, we're going to examine whether uh, there is uh, some, some truth to the, 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 the negative consequences that people tend to emphasize. So we're going to cover a range of issues. With 25 years of data uh, and anecdotes to uh, rely upon, Dan Griswold, did we hear a giant sucking sound? And thank, what thank, happened to trade thank, investment? Thank, thank, thank you, Dan. Well, first, I'll, I'll answer that in just a moment, but I think People on both sides of the NAFTA debate exaggerated the impact of the agreement. It was never going to have a large effect on the U.S. economy. At the time, we were 17 times bigger than Mexico. Our tariffs were already pretty rock-bottom low. Uh, trade with Mexico was like 1.4% of our economy, so there, there wasn't going to be a, a, a huge effect. Secondly, let's remember it's a trade agreement. Uh, it wasn't going to transform uh, the world. It delivered on its central promise of more trade uh, between, between the countries. Uh, Two-way two trade among the three partner countries, I think is more than tripled. It passed a, a trillion dollars a few years ago. It's 1.2 trillion or something. It's been a successful trade agreement. On the giant sucking sound, uh, it, it, was, it was the sound of silence. It was a deafening silence. It simply did not happen. You know, probably the single best measure of what Ross Perot was talking about would be uh, U.S. outward foreign direct investment, manufacturing investment in Mexico. And it has risen uh, since then, and that was to be expected. But in the last five years or so, it's averaged $3 billion a year. U.S. companies have invested uh, an outflow of about $3 billion a year that's risen somewhat uh, from the 90s. It was one or two uh, billion back then. Let's put that in context. Uh, every year, typically, U.S. companies are investing 150 to 200 billion dollars a year in domestic manufacturing in the United States. So the investment in Mexico is, is, a, is a trickle. <laughs> it's about 1.5% uh, of what's invested uh, domestically. Has, has there been a shakeout in certain industries? Yes. Comparative advantage uh, still, still applies. The, the textile and the leather industry and others 
have tended to migrate uh, to, to Mexico. Uh, but this global value chain uh, that we heard about earlier, uh, that's been very much to the U.S. advantage. We've held on to the higher end uh, tasks. You know, the auto industry is very uh, in instructive. I'm sure Ross Perot had the auto industry in mind. I know, don't know why he wouldn't have. Uh, but the U.S. auto industry is thriving in the duty-free NAFTA environment. Uh, in the United States, U.S. workers on U.S. soil are assembling about 12 million automobiles uh, a year. That's actually somewhat above the rolling 30-year uh, 30 30 uh, uh, average. If you look at the, the real value of output in the United States of finished automobiles and parts, it's doubled. Uh, since, uh, since, since NAFTA passed. Uh, our exports are at a record high. They're over 2 million. So we have created the competitive North American platform uh, that was promised. On jobs, um, yes, manufacturing employment has uh, declined uh, since NAFTA. It's not been because of NAFTA. It's because of technology. If you look at since 2000, say from 2000 to 2010, we lost 5 million manufacturing jobs here in the United States. But actually, the manufacturing employment in Mexico of US affiliates there actually declined during that time uh, as, as well because of the recession and other things. Uh, since uh, 2010, US employment in Mexico, manufacturing employment's gone up, but employment in the US has gone up. It's actually a, a positive relationship uh, when the parent company is doing well, they employ more abroad. When they employ more abroad, they employ more uh, at, at the parent company. So the, the bottom line is uh, NAFTA has delivered on the promises. Some of the promises were a little too grand. Uh, a lot of the warnings, like we heard in the clip, was too dire. Uh, NAFTA has been a, for the United States, it's been a, a modest, significant positive for the U.S. economy. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Dan has a pretty favorable opinion of NAFTA. We've heard other opinions um, in the public. Does anybody here want to sort of rebut what Dan says and point to uh, adverse consequences? I, I mean, I don't want to rebut what he says because I agree with all those positive consequences, and I absolutely agree that the positive consequences outweigh the negative consequences. But I do think that was, as we have these conversations, I mean, I, I'm worried that one of the challenges is that for the past 20 years, we've downplayed the costs, those who support the agreement, uh, as you know, sort of a way of taking sides. And, and unfortunately, I think that the result is that, of that has been a set of policies that don't take enough consideration of the distributional effects of the agreement. So I mean, there are winners and losers. This, you know, anyone who studies trade theory should know that. There are more winners than losers. But what you do with the losers is therefore very important. Uh, and, you know, I just honestly, I don't think we've done a very good job of handling that aspect of it, of taking some of those losers, uh, you know, the specific communities, specific industries that were challenged by trade liberalization, uh, to work with them to move them over to the winning column. And I think we're paying the cost of that right now. So it, it's, not, uh, it's not to dispute the benefits at all, uh, but I do think we need to be honest about the fact that there are costs. And the fact that we haven't been very honest about that is one of the, the reasons we're in this predicament today. But you think that should be a function of trade policy to try and work out the adjustment costs and to deal with the distributional aspects, or is that more of a domestic policy issue? Yeah, however you want to deal with it. I mean, I, I don't, 
<clears throat> I don't know that it has to be a part of the trade agreement. Maybe there are ways to think about it as a part of something you can, can put in there. But if we don't pay a lot of attention to bringing along the public with us, I mean, 50% of the public has always supported NAFTA. 50% has always opposed NAFTA. That's not good enough for long-term stability of a policy that's in the interest of our country, in the strategic interest of our country. We need to bring the public along, and so we need to find tools to do that. And I would tend to agree that most of those would probably fall more in the range of domestic policy, but if we don't attach them to the NAFTA debate, if we don't attach those domestic policies to the trade debate, and we just expect that they're gonna resolve themselves, and they don't, because they haven't, we're gonna be in the predicament that we're in today. I, I disagree um, with you that it has to be part of the trade debate. I mean, it has to be linked to the trade debate, but that's a question of economic policy. I mean, we ought to have a really good debate about distributional policy within the US. I mean, there are, we, we are conscious that we have uh, losses from trade, also from technical change, and those can be attached together and see what we can do about it. Obviously, the trade adjustment assessment plan is not working well in the US, it's working better in Europe, so there are lessons to learn from other uh, block areas. Um, but I do think it's more of an economic uh, distributional issue than a trade agreement issue. We can improve some provisions within the labor chapter and put the labor chapter back into the NAFTA. Um, to try to address one some of the issues for workers and improve their conditions, but it is broader than one than, than only that. It is about um, global governance and the safety net in the U.S. that is not working well enough. So I would like to add two points. The first one is that. Um, in terms of the objectives of NAFTA, I, mean, I think in hindsight it's easy to say, well, it's a trade agreement. What we expected was an increase in trade and investment, which have certainly happened. I would say more about this when I talk about Mexico, but certainly in the case of Mexico, NAFTA was not thought about it in this way only. It was much broader than that. It was perceived as a key to development and growth. And I think that... Yeah, that a little bit too in the first panel. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think that on that score, NAFTA has certainly disappointed. And maybe one lesson is that we shouldn't expect so much from uh, trade agreements. On the question of distribution, I would say I, I agree with, with uh, that idea that we actually need to make distribution part of uh, the way we think about uh, trade policy. And I would maybe perhaps for the sake of argument resist and disagree with the idea that we should only leave that to domestic policy. Because trade agreements are much more than tariffs nowadays. They're actually about all sorts of regulations that are structuring incentives for market actors, including capital and labor. And so I, I would contend one of the results of NAFTA at the moment is a, quite an imbalance between capital and labor, and that, and that structure also at the level of the trade agreements. So if you, need to, if you want to deal with distributional outcomes, you ought to address both the international level and the domestic level. Okay, let's, let's come back to this in a little bit. I, I wanted to just talk a little bit more about the giant sucking sound. Uh, Dan cited some numbers, uh, outflows of investment to Mexico, relatively small. But I think Americans have in their mind this, this, this example, the quintessential example of outsourcing being uh, you know, a, a factory closing down in the Rust Belt and being re-erected in Mexico, rafter by rafter, bolt by bolt, to produce for export back to the United States. The story with Carrier uh, late last year, early this year, <coughs> Carrier seemed to be in the business of wanting to do that. 
But that's not really what outsourcing is all about necessarily. There's, uh, there are lots of other aspects to it. It's fundamentally beneficial to companies, I believe. So Marta, I mean, has, has there been a lot of outsourcing and has it been uh, effective in helping U.S. companies sort of shore up the North American production platform by, by distributing where functions are, are performed? Yeah, totally. Um, so if we put that in context, the offshoring has created losses, but uh, job losses. But if we quantify those job, job losses, those are only 600,000 uh, jobs. I mean, those are significant in terms of uh, how people live, but I mean, um, it is quite a modest amount of job losses. Um, and those could have been lost anyway, due to technological change or import competition from China, for example. Um, the question is when we are talking uh, about the way uh, businesses produce, they produce in clusters. So they, it means that they are especially agglomerated. So when any kind of dislocation happens, it is quite disruptive for those communities. And those communities were basically concentrated in some industries, manufacturing, automobiles, or re retail textiles, also electronics, and hit areas in Michigan, some areas of New York, um, California, or Texas. So those, those are those job losses. But by the other way, um, allow manufacturers to release and liberalize resources to invest back home in the headquarters, which, is, uh, which are here, to liberalize resources to have better and safer um, automobiles. We enjoy a high variety of products that uh, are affordable uh, prices. And we are talking about 450 million people enjoying a high variety of products on the shelves at a very good prices. The question is that the costs are really, really concentrated, while the benefits are widely distributed. And, and when we are talking about the maquiladoras, what we are talking about? We are talking about more or less 3,000 plants uh, located along the border. And those employ 1.1 million people only. But they produce $80 billion a year for the US market. That allows those companies to be extremely competitive, to compete with German manufacturers, with Japanese manufacturers, with South Korean manufacturers that, by the way, they also use maquiladoras, maquilas. So it really liberalized resources for them to be more competitive. Productivity has increased. The number of jobs in manufacturing has been declining. But if you have a look at productivity, it has been increasing dramatically. And that's a story of success. The, that's the, how I see it, the, as an economist. The, the, the BEA data seems to show that uh, outsourcing is uh, a complement to domestic production and not really a substitute to it. And those are some examples. And increases efficiency of domestic yes. companies. That's also important. It has spillovers for Mexico and contributes to the development because uh, you learn how to do it uh, watching how other companies that are more efficient operate and organize. Right. Dan, could I? Yes, please. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to plead guilty to being a political scientist uh, and, uh, and not an economist. So. Well, I think aggregate efficiency is very, very interesting. Uh, I think the story of who who wins and who loses and how they how they win and how they lose is also uh, interesting and important for trying to understand the politics of this issue. Um, if you look at, you know, I, I tend to agree with sort of the comments both on this panel and the previous one in terms of the aggregate impact of NAFTA. Uh, we've lost some jobs, we've gained some jobs. It's been about a wash in aggregate terms. 
But if you sort of get specific uh, and look at sort of <clears throat> what are some of the sectors and what are some of the workplaces that have, have, that have experienced the cost, I think you get a little bit more of a sense of, of how the politics have shaped up the way they have. Uh, I mean, just, just as a, re a reminder, Hillary Clinton lost uh, Michigan by about 10,000 votes. Um, <clears throat> that's about the same number as was of workers that were certified by their union uh, under the NAFTA Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, <clears throat> almost exactly. Um, so even if only 10% or if only 20% of the, of, the, of the job loss in manufacturing is due to trade, you can get some pretty consequential numbers uh, as a matter of politics. And I think, I mean, I, I also have the misfortune of, of, of doing a content analysis of all of the NAFTA hearings. I went back sort of to look at the 1991 to 93 congressional hearings. It's about 80,000 pages of documents, over 100 hearings, um, you know. This was, this, was, this was widely debated at the time. Um, and if you look at sort of the way that people on the right and the left, people, industry and labor, talked about the likely economic impact, it was always in aggregate terms. Uh, there was hardly any exception where sort of even the voices of labor <clears throat> were telling the Democratic Party, uh, look, this is, this is not just, we don't see this as just bad for American workers overall. This is specifically bad for our members. And by the way, we're your main turnout operation in a lot of these places. Um, that, 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 that might have seemed sort of overly transactional, but it would have been the more honest accounting for, you know, for what ended up happening and also sort of what we see in terms of the, the heated politics of it today. Do, do, would many on the left and the labor movement acknowledge that in aggregate terms it wasn't very consequential on jobs? I mean, we had, we peaked in manufacturing employment in 1979, 19.4 million workers. We shed 2.7 million by 1993, the year before NAFTA went into effect. And then in the 14 years, beginning with the first year of NAFTA through 2007, we lost 2.9 million. So it wasn't a really big uptick. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I would never say, and, and there were five or six years after NAFTA where we actually increased manufacturing jobs to about, by about six or 700,000. I wouldn't attribute those job gains to NAFTA, but those who want to attribute the job losses overall to NAFTA have to grapple with certain facts. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. There's a great, you know, just to supplement what was said before, there's a great piece of research that's come out in the last couple of years from uh, Lindsay Oldensky and Ted Moran uh, that, you know, looked at U.S. firm-level data on this issue of investment, and they find when U.S. transnational companies are investing in Mexico, growing their employment in Mexico, on average, it's not the carrier story, right? On average, it's not a story of loss here and gain there. On average, it's in fact, when they're growing employment in Mexico, they're also growing employment in the United States exports from the United States, and the tightest connection is they're increasing R&D spending in the United States, which tells us something about how comparative advantage works, because our comparative advantage in the United States is in those higher skilled service jobs, those engineering jobs, marketing jobs, business management jobs, and that's where we're experiencing the gains. The, ch the challenge, of course, associated with that is that you know, both this process of technological change and the, you know, the smaller portion of job losses that are associated with trade and globalization-related factors are hitting the same group in U.S. society, which are unskilled workers, right, or less skilled workers. And so that's, it's that focused aspect of some of those losses in that sense, too, that's a challenge. But, but no, I mean, at the, at the big picture level, that carrier story is not representative of the U.S.-Mexico relationship, of the North American relationship. Why is that? Because we build things together. And so we experience periods of growth and recession together. We've syncop you know, synchronized our business cycles. We have 
have uh, competitiveness that's linked together, and we're more competitive as a result of this system. And so, you know, when we when we see growth in Mexico, that's associated with growth in the United States, not the other way around. Uh, Dan, just one other point about the nature of foreign investment, where the anecdotes don't match the data. For U.S. companies that establish affiliates abroad, 90% of what they produce is sold in the country they've invested in or other third countries. Mexico, it's a little lower, but it's over two-thirds. So when U.S. companies invest in Mexico, it isn't primarily as a platform to export back to the United States. That's the impression you'd get listening to certain officials in high office. It's to reach new markets uh, and to, to export. And of course, Mexico has free trade agreements with, what, 40-plus other countries. So really, it's, it's a way for U.S. companies to sell more goods abroad, not just in Mexico, but uh, in, in other countries. And that's a very important point. So economists, political scientists agree that there are lots of benefits to the NAFTA. What about the politicians? How come NAFTA is the poster child for everything that's wrong with uh, with trade agreements. Um, I remember in, in 2008, uh, in the Democratic primary, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were tripping over one another, Steve, to, uh, to be the one to claim the mantle, to be the one who's going to reopen NAFTA. Uh, and it's, you know, perennially, every four years, uh, it's, uh, it's a big issue. During the TPP, the TPP was NAFTA on steroids. Uh, do politicians have uh, responsibility here? What do you think about the, the roles that previous presidents and, and, and leaders could have. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a clear disconnect here politically between, on the one hand, what Dan said about uh, the benefits of NAFTA to all three countries, what was said this morning by Rufus Yerksa, NAFTA was tremendously successful, which I would agree with. The disconnect between those facts and that NAFTA is so unpopular among politicians, a lot of politicians, and the public. So why is that? I think first, I would agree with what Christopher and Alvaro and Todd said. Uh, there are bad distributional effects of NAFTA that have not been dealt with by our, our government. Uh, and, uh, uh, we, we, and, and workers are losing their job because of trade. And we promised them in the 1993 legislation, uh, that which narrowly uh, passed, but we promised them in that legislation that there would be a NAFTA worker adjustment program. It, I could talk about it for hours, but it has not been carried out very effectively. And it's part of a larger trade adjustment assistance program we have in the United States that's also been ineffective. So we're not dealing with these, the problems of dislocation and with distribution. And so the question was asked, well, isn't that domestic policy, not trade policy? And I mean, that's a very quaint distinction. But I, I, would, <laughs> I, would, I would say that all of trade policy, all of trade agreements, is about taking domestic policy and putting disciplines on it so that the costs of your policy are not externalized on other countries. That's what trade agreements are. And so in that context, it would be entirely appropriate, I would submit, uh, to have a requirement in a modernized NAFTA that all three countries had to have, be carrying out effective worker adjustment programs. Uh, I think it'd be a, a good thing to have an agreement. So let me, uh, so let me go back to, the, to the, uh, some other points on the question. So why this disconnect? Well, one part of it is that 
we overpromised, and Dan made that. A couple of you have made that point too. And I would go back to the the NAFTA uh, TV debate, uh, the Gore Perot debate, where Vice President Gore was widely said to have won that debate. Uh, how did he win, though? And so, if you go back and look at the transcript, Gore said, uh, "NAFTA will, by removing trade barriers, greatly accelerate our." Our then current trade surplus with Mexico, and we will have a larger trade surplus with Mexico than with any country in the world. Gore also promised, Larry King said, and the treaty would increase jobs here. And Gore said, oh, no question about it. So we overpromised a bit in that uh, debate and the way NAFTA was sold by the Clinton administration. And then uh, Dan also mentioned the uh, Clinton. The other, I think, important debate about NAFTA was the Democratic primary debate 2008 between Obama and Clinton. And uh, Clinton said in that debate, this is the one moderated by Tim Russert, Clinton said, I will make sure that we renegotiate, excuse me, uh, Clinton, Clinton said, uh, I will opt out of NAFTA unless we renegotiate it. We will renegotiate it on terms that are favorable to all of America. So even back then, 2008, she's saying she would get out unless NAFTA was renegotiated. Then Obama asked the same question, I will make sure that we renegotiate. Uh, I think we should use the hammer, this is Obama, we should use the hammer of a potential opt-out as leverage to ensure that we actually get labor and environmental standards that are enforced. So this was both candidates talked about that in 2008. Obama got elected. He forgot to renegotiate <laughs> NAFTA. Didn't happen. So again, a credibility gap is enhanced. And then I thought one of the most cynical things done by the Obama administration, when they negotiated TPP, which I strongly supported, but they, they called that, the TPP, a renegotiation of NAFTA. And to me, that denied the whole North American aspect of NAFTA. The essence of NAFTA is that it's a North American free trade agreement. Maybe calling it a community is too strong of a word, but certainly a North American neighborhood. That was the essence of NAFTA. That's what we should have emphasized. That's what it should have been built on. And it wasn't by the Obama administration. And then the, the, the other point, and this is something that John Weeks said this morning. Uh, he said, that our problems were caused by a political failure of the parties. And Ricardo also made the point that we haven't used our NAFTA institutions. So let me just underline that. The NAFTA set up a free trade council. And uh, as far as I can tell, it last met in the year 2012. There is no free trade council website. If you look at the WTO website, it is full of all sorts of, of information about how the WTO is good for the world, good for trade, good for developing countries. The WTO uses its website to sell itself to the public. There's no NAFTA website. Uh, there's no NAFTA Free Trade Council from what I can tell. We aren't using these institutions. This is part of the political failure. There's been, there haven't been efforts to have uh, systematic NGO input of business community input, parliamentarian input, all the things that could have brought NAFTA support from below haven't been done. 
uh, as Jim Back has said this morning, it's, it's been too toxic to mention the term NAFTA. Well, why is it toxic? Because we aren't explaining uh, the benefits of NAFTA to people. So no free trade council, uh, effectively. Uh, one of the things that NAFTA side agreement on labor set up was a NAFTA labor secretariat. It was originally uh, positioned in Dallas. It, has, it no longer exists. Uh, and I saw my friend Marcy Kapter, who was one of the Democratic congressmen to vote against NAFTA in 1993. Just a month ago, she advocated that in this renegotiated NAFTA, they set up a labor secretariat. Well, this was part of the original agreement, but it hasn't been uh, continued uh, by the government. The one bright spot is the Council on Environmental Cooperation, Commission on Environmental Cooperation, the NAFTA Environmental Side Agreement. Not perfect by any means, but that agreement has, has worked. Uh, funding's not as high as it could be, but that agreement has something. The NAFTA Environmental Side Agreement, people say it's old and you know all about that. The NAFTA Environmental Side Agreement has something that not a single environmental chapter of a U.S. trade agreement since 1993 has. The NAFTA Environmental Side Agreement has an independent commission to deal with the environmental problems in North America that includes a joint public advisory committee from the three countries. None of the other U.S. free trade agreements or Canadian free trade agreements have that, that institutional feature. So these are the features that should have been strengthened and built up to help give NAFTA support, and they weren't. And I would agree with Ambassador Weeks, that was a serious political failure. Yep, Steve, Steve you've made a lot of points, and I'm sure people have some, some not rebuttals or just rejoinders. Uh, somebody, anybody want to comment on? Anything? Yeah, just a quick point. I'll, I'll apologize. I'm not a political scientist. I come at it more from an economics point of view. But trade agreements are always going to have this disadvantage, aren't they? The benefits tend to be broadly diffused and lower prices, more competition, jobs being created that we aren't even aware of. Uh, whereas the opponents, they're from sectors that feel the pain and they're, they're energized. Uh, you know, those comments by Obama and Clinton during 2008, those were in the primary campaign. I think it's important uh, to note when a prime constituency was organized labor, which has thrown its lot in uh, with, with the protectionists, the cynicism wasn't that Obama didn't renegotiate it when it got into office. It's when he said during the campaign that they would do those things, not really believing uh, that they were the right things uh, to do. The other aspect, and I think we'll get to it uh, in a minute, is the, the foreign policy implications uh, for, for the United States. You know, that's something that NAFTA doesn't get credit for, taking this what was a, an adversarial relationship with Mexico over decades, and some good reasons for some of the grievances, uh, but it, it really put U.S.-Mexican relations on a much firmer footing, uh, friendlier footing than they had been. One of the dangers of renegotiating NAFTA in this kind of hostile environment is it's creating hostile feelings in Mexico. There was a, a Pew Research Center poll. Uh, two years ago, two-thirds of Mexicans had a favorable view of the United States. The latest poll, that's down to one-third. And I think I have one primary explanatory variable <laughs> uh, 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 be, be behind that. But that's, that's a cost that we need to consider. I mean, I think if you go back even to sort of the, <clears throat> the way Clinton sold NAFTA, Bill Clinton sold NAFTA in the, in the 90s, <clears throat> you get a sense that this was a very sort of transactional, one-off thing that was never followed up with sort of any serious institutional commitments, as Steve was mentioning. Uh, so, I mean, 
set aside some of the promises around sort of aggregate job creation. I mean, if you look at sort of promises for off-ramps that Bill Clinton promised would be built in someone's district, a lot of that stuff didn't happen either. Uh, I mean, so there was a real lack of care and attention to follow up to sort of make sure that the Democratic Party felt good uh, about the about the thing they had just helped do. Um, and I think, you, you know, that cynicism has sort of been there for decades. I, I remember being in a meeting uh, at the AFL-CIO after... <clears throat> right after the uh, Obama won office. And uh, it was kind of laughed off by, uh, by everyone, including the U.S. Trade Representative, that they were actually going to do anything about NAFTA. Like, that's what we say during campaigns. When we govern, we don't do anything about it. And, and everyone knows that because it would be too hard. Um, so I think that this sort of short-termism that, that's, that's come about uh, from the way sort of politicians have handled this uh, has sort of created the seeds of the, of the, of the revolt and the sort of dis- discontent that you're seeing now. Just to, just to get back to your, your comment about the distinction being quaint uh, uh, about uh, job loss. I mean, if 80% of job loss is attributable, or more than that, is attributable to factors other than trade, and we go out of our way to make amends for the, tri- for the job dislocations that occur because of trade, isn't that uh, engendering more opposition to trade in general? How does it help the 1.7 million truckers who might be out of jobs next year when, 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 when 18-wheelers go uh, driverless. So I think my, my viewpoint is that we don't need to make it part of trade. It, it, we have a system in place, a federalist system, where 50 states, different tax and regulatory policies, different education policies, uh, there are lots of experiments going on, and some states do a better job of creating new attracting new investment and creating new jobs. Some do a poor job. Maybe we can, they can compare notes and, uh, and, 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 and instead of writing it into trade agreements, leave it to domestic policymakers to be more responsible. Well, we certainly we should be encouraging innovation at the state level. It's the states, after all, that carry out all these programs. They're not federal programs. But it's a little late in the day at this point to say, let's take... Uh, trade adjustment out of trade policy. It was, after all, Senator John F. Kennedy in the 1950s who was uh, urging that um, trade legislation be passed that came up with the idea of having a trade adjustment assistance program that would deal with the people who lose their jobs as a result of trade. And that was part of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, part of the Trade Act of 74. Worker adjustment has been part of every major piece of trade legislation this country has passed since 1962. And so if we say now, oh, uh, why don't we just deal with trade impact some other way, I, I think it's not going to work. So in a practical sense, we, we ought to do it as part of the trading system. And, and, but of course, we should have broader programs for everyone that loses their jobs. And, and, and these programs don't have to be federal. They could be state. But there's a market failure out there in the labor market when experienced workers lose their jobs as a result of technology or, or whatever, and they don't quickly find new jobs. That's a market failure, and it's inappropriate for government to intervene with the right kinds of, of policies, including subsidies and assistance and other things. The United States has always really lagged in that area, and we, you know, we need to, to step up our game in it. Well, so- I would say something in addition to that, which is that I find this distinction between what counts as trade and what doesn't a little puzzling because our current trade agreements are 
about much more than just the tariffs. And so we're in fact creating entitlements for different global actors. And you, saw that, you see that in investment, you see that in intellectual property. And so those entitlements have an effect on the power that these actors have and in the domestic effects that you will see. And so if you're troubled by those effects, you can structure those markets differently. And so I think that that's why we need to actually recognize that we've done a lot of regulation at the international level and that that's also part of what trade agreements have been about. And so I think it's important to recognize that and to see it, the same applies to labor. Mm. What would be the balance that we want to struck? I, this is not to deny that there's a lot more work that needs to happen at the domestic level that is not happening and that maybe even I would be happy to recognize that maybe most of the work needs to be done there or most of the promise can be obtained there. But I would definitely reject the idea that the trade agreements have nothing to do with the distribution outcomes. But, but trade agreements are about setting the rules. President Trump will say it's about getting outcomes. And, and I think that that's why we have a lot of bad ideas co coming from the U.S. in this negotiation. They're trying to tweak rules of origin and have these sunset provisions so that if we don't get trade balance or a trade surplus, there's a problem. That's, you know, those are business ideas. That's a contract We're talking about outcomes. Um, I don't, I don't, just set up the rules. Uh, yeah. and, 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 the, yeah. and, and what I'm saying is that those rules matter, and that's why there's conflict and contestation about how those rules should be established. And so I would agree with you that certain rules, it would be better to leave as they are in NAFTA, but I think that the debate is about those rules as well. And so the fact that we have now NAFTA or other trade agreements doesn't mean that we can't change them or that, therefore, that's the only market that can exist. I think there are different types of markets, and we've seen that with different trade agreements. Fair enough, fair but enough. dipping into your thoughts, um, there are, I mean, companies are also outsourcing jobs to Canada, but nobody talks about that. So, I mean, the underlying issue here it is that uh, Mexico pays very low wages compared to the wages that are paid in the US or in Canada. And that's a question that can be addressed by in any trade agreement. We can help our workers over here by improving the trade adjustment, our assessment uh, program. But the issue it is that in Mexico, those workers are going to be paid $4 an hour compared to $20 an hour here. And that's an, an issue that has to be tackled by Mexico because it's a domestic issue. And why those wages have been suppressed for such a long time? It is because the size of the informal, in, informal economy in Mexico is extremely high. Mm. And productivity in Me Mexico for the last 20 years has improved only by 10% compared like it's <clears throat> It's not even a third of the improvement of our productivity in Canada or in, in the US. So that's nothing you can fix with a trade agreement whatsoever. Let me elaborate the question to you then. Um, uh, so what were the, the, we talked a little bit about the political consequences, what, but what do you think were the political, economic, social consequences of, of the NAFTA on Mexico? Um, and what, do they meet, exceed, fall short of expectations, objections, yeah. objectives? So um, Steve quoted uh, US politicians uh, at the wake of NAFTA. And I, I wanted to also quote then President Carlos Salinas advertising NAFTA, saying, 
At the end of this century, global trade and freer trade is a way to improve the standard of living of our populations. That is why we in Mexico have proposed to the US and to Canada a free trade agreement. NAFTA is a job-creating agreement. We want to export goods, not people. This was in a commencement address at MIT in 1993. Uh, so again, I recognize, and I think everyone recognizes the effects that NAFTA has had on trade volume and investment. Dan gave us very useful statistics about that. If you compare it, though, against these expectations, and it was also the Mexican government taking credit for having come up with this really innovative idea to the United States and Canada, it seems to me that the results pale in regard to those expectations. It was really sold as a key to growth and development. And so when you look at the data, well, so Mexico has grown at a rate of 1.2 or 1.3% GDP <coughs> per capita from 1994 to 2016, according to IMF statistics. That's one of the lowest rates in Latin America. Uh, it, that rate is much lower than the rate Mexico experienced in the 60s and 70s, when average grade growth was 3.6%. Poverty levels, there's three different measures of, uh, of poverty levels that include food, healthcare, education, clothing, housing, and transportation. The poverty rates are about the same that they were in 1994 in all those three levels. They, they have varied, so they went uh, up in the peso crisis and then the bottom. They actually decreased in 2006 and then they went up again. So now we have about the same poverty levels. Uh, the gains of productivity, as low as that productivity has, has been, have disproportionately gone to capital and not to labor. The, average, the real average wages in Mexico have barely grown since 1994. And so when you look at those statistics, I think that it's important to recognize that something has gone wrong or, or that maybe the expectations, the initial expectations were terribly uh, misleading. And that uh, NAFTA cannot be, certainly as it is now, a development strategy, that a lot more needs to be done by Mexico at the domestic level to use NAFTA to articulate its domestic policies with NAFTA as a strategy for growth. Um, and so, <clears throat> on the other hand, and I think Steve and, and Dan also mentioned this, it's also important to recognize that at the political level, in terms of the bilateral relations, NAFTA has done a lot of good, that it, it shifted a relationship where both countries saw each other with mistrust, you know, the, the phrase of distant neighbors, to seeing themselves as partners. And that, that has had a positive impact. And that also, all of a sudden, societies in those two countries recognized that they had historic links that were really powerful, both cultural, uh, artistic, educational, and economic. That there was a big part of the Mexican population living in the United States. And that there was hybridity that was formerly perhaps not recognized. And so I think all of those things have been positive, And I would applaud them. Uh, on the economic front, however, I think that NAFTA leaves much to be desired. Uh, but do you think that's because of NAFTA or because of the way because the distributional effects To of put it in the bluntest possible terms, I think the big mistake was for the Mexican government to believe that NAFTA was a development strategy. And not only NAFTA, it then went on to sign 
you know, dozens of trade agreements as if that was the development strategy. And so it has stopped doing things to try to create these connections between the export sectors and the internal market that would actually do something to uh, create uh, this vi virtual circle that we associate with growth. Uh, I mean, one of the one of the pictures that we get from the Mexican economy, it's of huge polarization. Mm -hmm. We have like vanguard sectors that are exporting, companies that are financing themselves in the New York Stock Exchange that don't even need you know, finance from local banks, et cetera, uh, you know, with relatively good conditions of employment. And then huge sectors that are completely backward in terms of uh, their modes of production, their wages, their working conditions, and their financing. And these two sectors are very disconnected. And I think that the idea that liberalization was somewhat going to take care of that, or in some ways lift all boats, it was, was proven wrong. And but would you advocate withdrawal? No, okay. I wouldn't advocate okay. withdrawal. But I think that <coughs> once the treaty is open, yeah. So one problem I see with the current Mexican stance is that because Trump has been so adamant at saying that, oh, Mexico has basically been the big winner and the United States has been cheated or, you know, it's a terrible deal. And so the Mexican government has done a lot of good work showing how NAFTA has also been good for the United States. But we almost forget this other part, which is that, in fact, Mexico, uh, NAFTA has not been all that great for Mexico and that we need to rethink what we want out of it. And so now that the treaty is open, it'd be important to think about a strategy. But, Alberto, what you described at the end there was this polarization of the Mexican yeah. economy, this, this efficient uh, part of the economy that's manufacturing for export. That's the NAFTA economy. Not that's all the, the NAFTA economy that's functioning in Mexico. Yeah, but it's not the only. other part of the Mexican economy that's not functioning. And so if there was, a, so if there can was I... a failure, it's not expanding that to the domestic economy. It's not expanding the rule of law that NAFTA brought to international trade to the, to the domestic economy. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I agree with your, your premise that you know, it was not, NAFTA itself is not a comprehensive development strategy, and it was proven to not be one for Mexico. That's absolutely true. But NAFTA was the, you know, the, the part of the economy that's functioning well in Mexico is the part exposed to international competition, exposed to NAFTA, that eventually, you know, some companies did disappear in Mexico, those who couldn't compete. But those who learned to compete are successful and are now investing billions of dollars back in the United States. Since 2005, Mexican FDI in the U.S. has quadrupled. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a tremendous growth story there. And I also think that you, you know, for, for fair reasons, but, but cherry-picked the data a bit on the status of the Mexican economy. There's also, in addition to everything you said, there's a growing middle class, a huge decline in extreme poverty, incredible new access but to goods on the shelves in Mexico. Huge decline in extreme poverty, it's not, it's not right. It's down from like 20 some percent to closer to 10 percent. Well, mean, that's, I mean, that's a real, that's a real. That's official statistics. We can talk about it more, but I, I, I want to recognize what you're saying, which yeah. is that there is a sector in the Mexican economy that's doing well. I mean, manufacturing, uh, the automobile industry is, is definitely doing well. And so that the big challenge is how to connect these leading or vanguard sector of the economy to the rear guard sectors of the economy. And this polarization you can also see geographically, yeah. right? Now, if I may, I would also say a lot of the automobile industry, which is 
often presented as a big success of NAFTA, predates NAFTA. And it was actually established with industrial policy that required companies that wanted to sell cars in Mexico to establish factories there, that required local content so that uh, these factories would actually buy inputs from Mexican auto parts supplies. And so you created a chain of production that was established in a quite robust way before NAFTA entered into effect and even before GATT. So the story of automobile industry is not due to NAFTA. I mean, it's taken advantage of NAFTA and of liberalization, no doubt about it. I would not be entirely sure that you would see the same effects if it didn't exist before and, and uh, NAFTA was then put into place. I don't know that you would have had the conditions to create such a booming automobile industry. In other words, what I'm saying is that there's a role there for the government to create policies to try to create these links that are currently not there. But I just want to... Uh, correct a little bit this impression that the manufacturing industry, the automobile industry in Mexico is basically the result of NAFTA. It was established long before and it's taken advantage of it, but, but it's important to, to add that. I mean, I would just also say that, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting sort of that NAFTA 1.0 and NAFTA 2.0 are coming at interesting times for Mexican politics as well. I mean, looking back over those congressional hearings from NAFTA, you had on the one hand sort of uh, Bill Clinton and the, and the Bush administration promoting NAFTA as a way to help cement democracy in Mexico, while at the same time saying, noting that sort of in 88, the, the left had almost won and that we got to hurry up and sort of lock in these reforms uh, while we still can, which is sort of interesting tension between democracy and lack of democracy there. Um, Fast forward to NAFTA 2.0, you have sort of the same thing. I mean, the, the Mexican government wants to hurry up and get this over with before the left might win in the, in the coming election. And, you know, it's, it, it's an interesting sort of repeat of the U.S. as well, where you have sort of a former first lady uh, versus an aging socialist. Uh, you know, sound familiar to anyone here? Uh, you know? So, so it's, it's, it's interesting sort of how the timing of this, the trade agreement negotiations is, is lining up with Mexican political cycle. Just a short comment. I think you are omitting the fact that uh, NAFTA industries in Mexico, they pay a premium that is in between 20% and 40%, and that's a huge difference. And if you have a look at where those uh, NAFTA industries and sectors are located, those are the rich areas in, me in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Those are that actually are creating more middle class. So the issue is not, okay, let's address the polarization. Yes, it exists. But what you have to do is to bring those other areas Mm -hmm. Convert to bring convergence to bridge the gap over there. So actually, yeah, NAFTA has created jobs. Is paying twenty percent or even forty percent above the market wage, mm -hmm. and 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 is. Let's let's working. let's let's move to what's going on currently in the current negotiations. But but before that, I just wanted to close out on Mexico with a, with a question for for Chris. Do you see uh, uh, real serious complications? Uh, on the repercussions, implications for the immigration debate, the counterterrorism debate, the anti-counterfeiting debate, if NAFTA fails. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an important point that we should remember is that what's at stake right now is not just the economic relationship between the United States and Mexico, but something bigger than that. The entirety of the relationship, yeah. to a certain extent, is on the line. Now, it won't totally disappear in the absence of NAFTA. There could be some space for cooperation. But we should you know, remember how far we've come 
and the role that NAFTA played in getting us there in terms of the relationship. I mean, Mexico for decades has something called the Estrada Doctrine, this, this idea really that of non-interventionism as its principle of foreign policy. And why did Mexico espouse non-interventionism? Well, so that we didn't intervene in their affairs because of things like the Mexican-American War, taking half of Mexico, you know, things like that in the history. So Mexico held the US at arm's length for decades, right? And then with NAFTA, Carlos Salinas really decided to, to make a risky bet and flip that on his head and say that the way to protect Mexican sovereignty, the way to strengthen Mexico was not to hold the US at bay, but to embrace the relationship with the United States and connect Mexico to the United States. And so he did that on economic terms. But what followed was, was fascinating because it expanded out from those economic terms of integration and connection out into other spheres. So after 9-11, when the United States needed cooperation from Mexico to ensure that there was never a terrorist attack that involved a crossing from Mexico into the United States, Mexico had every incentive to work with the United States on border management and intelligence sharing to make sure that that never happened. They share more passenger manifest data and information with the United States than virtually any other country. The United States gets to run background checks or you know, run through databases, all sorts of people that fly into Mexico, virtually everyone. Uh, then on security cooperation with the Merida Initiative, that deepened in a, to an extreme degree uh, where we have a huge degree of intelligence and, and law, force, law enforcement cooperation that's ongoing now. On migration even, as it's shifted, you know, in terms of unauthorized crossings of the US-Mexico border from being mostly Mexicans making those crossings to mostly Central Americans making those crossings, there's been a space that's opened up for cooperation between the United States and Mexico. And it's a controversial space, but what Mexico has done is it's become a 50-50 partner in managing that flow of migrants. So in 2015, Mexico actually detained and deported more Central American migrants than the United States did. And it, Mexico has a complicated set of interests there, but you better bet that part of the reason they did that was because the US asked them for help mm. with that challenge, and they were willing to do that. And so now Mexico, I mean, just remember this fact, Mexico sends 80% of its exports to the United States. This market access to the United States is a top priority national interest. Mexico will do what it needs to do to get a reasonable outcome, what it considers a reasonable outcome in NAFTA. That means that they're willing to put more on the line than just the economic dimensions of the relationship. That if push comes to shove, Mexico is going to be willing to put some of those other aspects of cooperation on the table. And we better be thoughtful about the fact that that's at risk. And, and importantly, I should say, right now, cooperation on all those other fronts continues in, in better than ever shape. Uh, what Mexico is saying with that is, we're your partner. Mm -hmm. You in the national security establishment in the United States, you in the Department of Homeland Security in the United States, don't forget that we're here working with you and make sure you go and tell your boss that we're here working with you and that you need us as a partner, right? You want us as a partner because we've become neighbors and partners to a degree that was just not the case before NAFTA. Well, <clears throat> more compelling reasons for making sure that we don't lose NAFTA and assuming that uh, we do make progress and eventually have a NAFTA 2.0, uh, what would be your priorities, Dan, for, for, for the NAFTA 2.0? Yeah, and I think the panel earlier, somebody defined it well. There's NAFTA modernization, which I think it's due. It's a close to a quarter century old agreement versus NAFTA renegotiation. I don't think we need to renegotiate NAFTA. We need to modernize it. One of the ironies of the Trump trade policy, and there are many of them, uh, is that the Trans-Pacific Partnership largely did that. Uh, one of the first things I would do, Dan, is take Chapter 14, the digital trade chapter of TPP, and just cut and paste it uh, into uh, NAFTA 2.0, whatever you want to call it. I said con. Uh, yeah. And, um, 
uh, state-owned enterprises. You know, when NAFTA was negotiated, the energy sector in Mexico was, you know, cordoned off, and now they're willing to, uh, to, to, to talk about those things. Another issue that hasn't been talked to, was raised briefly by, by Rufus this morning is the de minimis standards. And this sounds like kind of a wonky uh, issue, but uh, de minimis thresholds are extremely important for electronic commerce. Uh, I was part of uh, some joint economic committee hearings, hearings in uh, September on digital trade, and this issue came up. Um, <clears throat> We recently raised our de minimis to $800. So packages can arrive from overseas uh, through e-commerce platforms to a customer in the United States. As long as it's not over $800, customs doesn't mess with it. They don't inspect it. They don't collect duties. It just comes. Uh, if a U.S. company, and there are 300,000 U.S. companies that are exporting to other markets now, if they want to send a package on, through eBay or Amazon to a customer in Canada, it's a $20 threshold, which is ridiculous. The Canadian government spends four times as much trying to collect those duties as the actual duties they collect from these small packages. In Mexico, it's $300. Wouldn't that be a great thing? And how about talk about a win-win that the Trump administration could crow about. Uh, let's get all three countries to agree on an $800 uh, de minimis. All sounds like... Like great ideas. <laughs> um, anybody else uh, have a priority they want to chime in on? If not, okay. Um, what do you make of the withdrawal threat? Trump's withdrawal threat, the, the overt one, the implied one, or as, as Rufus called it, the de facto withdrawal, which is the product of some of these kind of ridiculous proposals that are out there. What do you, what do you make of it? Is well, for it, me it's it's very incredible? Yeah. Well, for me, it's very difficult to, to be in the president's mind. What, what is he thinking? I think, <laughs> um, there's there's plenty of space in there. <laughs> so uh, from the economic point of view, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, they, when NAFTA was uh, started, uh, was, was implemented, it has an overarching goal. Right now, the goal, it is okay. It is okay to modernize it. We all agree on that. And is, that part is eventually going well. But... The other goal, it is to reduce the trade deficit. And I, as an economist, and I think most of us are agree with that, I completely oppose to, to the use of any trade deficit metrics to assess the success of any free trade agreement. Because a trade deficit or the huge current account deficit that the US economy has is coming from a macroeconomic imbalance. We consume a lot of goods and services in this country, and we earn or produce less than that, and then we borrow from, from the rest of the world to supplement those. And exchange movements, fluctuations in the exchange rate, it, it has a lot of impact in fluctuations in the, tra in, in the trade deficit. So um, if we focus on the sunset clause or increasing the rules of origin uh, up to 80% or in increasing the amount of US-made uh, components, we think those are there to curve the, tr the trade deficit. But it actually is not going to work. It may work with Mexico, but it's going to widen the trade deficit with third countries because producing those goods are going to be more expensive. They are going to be either shipped back to the U.S. Uh, paying duties, so that will increase the final price, and then how you are going to compete with German manufacturers. 
that's not going to help the deficit with Germany or with Japan. So by reducing one, you are quite, I mean, the, the intended policy actually is widening the deficit with third countries. So by any metrics, by any compelling reasons, that shouldn't be part of the goal of renegotiating NAFTA. And that's why those are non-starters. But it seems that Canada and Mexico are engaging and are working together. The relationship is at a high uh, point. And let's wait. The delay in, in the negotiations, uh, I think, will help us to gain clarity and see if the US is willing to move to a more flexible position. It's a negotiation. So I'm optimistic. Well, you know, it, it's easy to uh, think of ways to improve NAFTA. I would like to strengthen NAFTA. Unfortunately, the Trump administration wants to weaken NAFTA. So it's hard for me to get too excited about their uh, agenda. But there was an interesting question raised this morning at the first panel about what, in effect, what could we do to satisfy Trump? And none of the panelists wanted to, to take that on. But uh, one of the uh, directly take that on. But I do want to talk a little bit about the dispute settlement provisions because they've been, there was a, an interesting piece in Forbes.com a couple days ago arguing that, uh, talking about Chapter 11 and Chapter 19, arguing that these provisions are unnecessary, raise fundamental questions about sovereignty and constitutionality, and fuel trade agreement opposition. Well, I can't. Maybe they do fuel trade agreement opposition, but they're not being well explained. But let me talk about the sovereignty and the constitutionality. There are no sovereignty gap issues with regard to Chapter 11 or 19, and there are no constitutionality uh, issues. It, it, those are kind of bogus arguments. With regard to Chapter 11, and these are the investor state provisions, what we've done there is we've established international law on investment, and we've set up, a, a, in effect, a court or a panel to adjudicate disputes between investors and a government. That's a huge ad advance in, in, in how we deal with those issues. Uh, in, in prior days, we dealt with them as, uh, with gunboats. Uh, now we're dealing with them under the rule of law. And we had, you know, for many years, a Latin American concept of the Calvo Clause, uh, which was that investor-state disputes had to be dealt with in the court of the host country. Well, what NAFTA did in Chapter 11 is said, no, an investor doesn't have to go to Mexico if he thinks there's been expropriation. He can go to an international court to have that adjudicated. And that was a huge advance in international law, and we should be proud of it, rather than saying, let's give it away as a bargaining chip. Chapter 19 is, a, is, a, is another interesting issue. This is a big advance in global administrative law to say that instead of taking a dispute to a U.S. court by a Canadian private party, they'd have to go to a U.S. court. Instead, they will get an international panel. And again, I think that's a, a, a great uh, idea uh, and uh, nothing unconstitutional about it. Now, the one fix we might make on it, and this responds to what was said in this Forbes.com piece, is that maybe the argument was made that maybe we've come to a point where the, the foreign exporter in Canada would get a better shake by using the U.S. court rather than going to the NAFTA chapter, article, uh, chapter 19 tribunal. If so, that's an easy fix. One can go into NAFTA, 
and change the provision in Article, I think it's 1904, and say that the uh, uh, complainant gets the option of either going to the domestic court or going to the international tribunal. I'd be fine with that sort of fix. But the, the idea that these provisions are unnecessary or uh, violate the Constitution is totally false. That was my article. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would urge you to read it and, and, and think about it. I mean, there, there are plenty of people who take uh, issue with the constitutionality. It's kind of, kind of odd for a U.S. agency determination, the executive branch uh, implementing law, for that law to be challenged uh, outside of the U.S. court system. Uh, anyway, we, that's, that's a debate that we can really uh, get into. There, there are economic reasons for it, too. I mean, it's... Getting rid of ISDS is a pro-market sort of thing to do. We are subsidizing the, uh, the risks undertaken by companies investing. Investment is risky. So you reap all the rewards, then you must incur all of the risk or face all of the risk. And uh, there, there are a lot of negative externalities as a result of, of ISDS. But many of us have opinions on it on, up here. I'm yeah, thinking. I actually wanted to, <laughs> to jump in. Uh, because even if we accept that there is no sovereignty issue, I mean, at the end, countries sovereign, made a sovereign decision to agree on this treaty, I think there are concerns with investment that we, we ought to think about or address, right, with the current form that invest, investment protection has taken, including in Chapter 11. Uh, I, I like your idea that this created a rule of law system where you know, investors had predictability and calculability and so forth. But I think that <clears throat> changing those rules wouldn't make it a, a system where no rule of law prevails. It would simply be different types of protections. And investment is an anomaly in international trade law in the sense that the standard of treatment is national treatment. So you treat foreign goods and foreign uh, producers, the way you treat your own nationals in investment, you are actually affording foreign investors a higher degree of protection that, they, you, that you afford your own domestic investors. There's really no reason for that. And, and now that the US and other industrialized countries have become recipients of investment themselves, they're realizing the constraints that those rules put in their regulatory space. So there's been serious concerns about you know, what countries can do, for instance, for health regulation in tobacco, how they require companies to advertise their tobacco. There's been cases about that. There, there was a, a case filed by a French company against Egypt because of a minimum wage law and the way in which that law affected its investment interests. Uh, that case hasn't been decided yet, but there are also environmental regulatory concerns. So I think that you know, there is a serious concern about what's the interest in giving what protection to investors vis-a-vis -vis the public interest. There's also an issue about how we treat investors vis-a-vis -vis our own domestic investors. And there's this, this point that also often scholars have made about a potential conflict of interests that arises in a regime of investment where lawyers are often arbitrators themselves, right? And so the trade agreement that Canada is negotiating with Europe proposes a different model that changes some of these protection rules for investors and also establishes perhaps a different type of body that will adjudicate these disputes. So I'll just leave it there, but I would say there are serious concerns and I think that this doesn't mean don't offer rules of protection, but those rules can be different. Let's, let's not 
debate this too deeply. I mean, there's clearly differences of opinion, but just from the political perspective, and one of the arguments that I put forward is that, you know, maybe this could win some support from the left for, for NAFTA. Lighthizer has said he wants bipartisan support, majority in both parties. Maybe it's not enough, it's probably not enough to give on ISDS, but I don't know, Todd, maybe you have a, some, some views on what would win support from the left uh, to make this, uh, to, to, to help pass NAFTA. Well, so I think the first thing to note is that there, even though we don't remember it in sort of our recent history, there is actually precedent for Democrats coming on board with trade agreements. I mean, if you look at the 1988 Fast Track and 1984 Fast Track, the Tokyo Round, uh, the Jordan Agreement, you had substantial Democratic support. Uh, even, you know, as recently as the Peru Agreement, you had, you know, close to half of the caucus, the Democratic caucus in the House support the Peru Agreement. So it's not it's not crazy to think that there is a deal that could be made. But that said, I do think the politics of this, NAFTA in particular, are very difficult. I think that, you know, you have the, the constituents that, uh, you know, you have, you have the interests that wanted it the first time around, and you have the people that hated it the first time around. And almost anything you do is going to sort of move that, the balance of that deal in a way that one or the other side is kind of a hard time living with. So I, I don't see how you get majority support for, for much of anything, to be honest, uh, that Trump might want to do to NAFTA. Yeah. And we had uh, Lori Wallach here once, and we were talking, debating that for the TTIP, ISDS and the, and the TTIP, and I asked her, so if there were no ISDS and TTIP, would you support it? And she said, eh. <laughs> So there are other things that uh, I think yeah. that they would go after. So, but anyway, I still think it's a bad idea. Um, some other silly ideas in the, uh, <laughs> that, are, that the U.S. is proposing. Well, I think it's silly. Maybe, maybe you don't, Alvaro. Um, mandatory minimum wages, uh, major, higher minimum wage laws in Mexico. Uh, do, what do you think about that? Well, I think it will depend on what exact rule we're talking about. Uh, as I said, I, I think that NAFTA creates an opportunity for bringing labor from a side agreement to the full body of the treaty, TTP already um, created a much more uh, advanced uh, labor chapter. TPP actually included a provision that required parties to have laws concerning acceptable conditions of work with respect to minimum wages, hours of work and occupied safety and health that all the countries agreed to. And so I think that the question would be what exactly is the rule that is being proposed and how it would be enforced. Uh, One of the things that I would suggest here is that TPP actually had an effect in Mexico that is often not appreciated and has sort of gone under the radar, which is it stimulated a domestic labor reform that independent unions had demanded for years. So there was a constitutional reform that basically changed the dispute settlement uh, system from uh, these tripartite boards to creating courts, bringing that to the judicial system. Um, It also created an independent autonomous institution that would be in charge now of registering uh, unions, and registering the majority of collective agreements. So taking that away from the government, from the Ministry of uh, the Labor. Um, 
And, and so those changes are pretty dramatic and they're still to be implemented. There's secondary legislation that hasn't been passed. So this is an opportunity, actually, the negotiation of NAFTA, to make sure that these changes take place in Mexico. That, to me, would be one of the most promising aspects of a new NAFTA, that these conditions change in Mexico so that the conditions under which labor and capital bargain would be different and that that would take in, in some ways uh, care to some extent to the uh, suppressed wages that we've had because there's been an alliance between employers, official unions and government that have really suppressed wages for far too long. And so I think that this would be one way of changing that dynamic that could be important. Now, so, so lab labor provisions would be your priority for Mexico? No. Uh, I don't know if the priority would be a very important component of a new NAFTA. So to make sure that there's a robust labor uh, chapter included there with uh, enforcement mechanisms and accompanied by the domestic, by the end of the domestic reform that started with TPP and we haven't seen yet. Okay. Dan, could I yeah, please. jump in on that? Uh, I, I think the labor provisions are very problematic generally. I think it's a terrible idea for a renegotiated NAFTA to include some requirement for Mexico to have a, a certain minimum wage. One, that's Mexico's issue. You know, another irony of the Trump trade so policy, they're, say, they're, talk, so, so they're talking about so sovereignty, they're talking about America first, and other nations have their sovereignty. If I were a Mexican, I'd be insulted that the United States is trying to dictate uh, what minimum wages are. What, and also, you can just critique from an economic point of view the, the utility and the negative unintended consequences of minimum wages. Mexicans get paid a fraction of what Americans do. I don't think primarily or maybe even significantly because of some government uh, <clears throat> policy on their part to suppress wages because their productivity is so much lower. The answer is to raise their productivity, and you do that through uh, domestic as well as, as trade reform. So, yeah, I think uh, it's become a political necessity to have a labor provision to get it over the finish line politically. I don't think the labor provisions do one thing uh, to help workers in Mexico. That has to be domestic Mexican policy and towards labor market flexibility. You look at Germany and other countries that have successfully navigated uh, domestic labor market challenges. It's been in the direction of, of liberalizing uh, their domestic labor markets. Okay, so I want to respond whenever it's appropriate. Uh, well, I, I just if, briefly. Are we on, on the same point? Yeah. 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 Uh, NAFTA 1.0, in its preamble, has as purposes uh, to protect, enhance, and enforce ba basic workers' rights and to create new employment opportunities and improve working conditions and living standards in all three countries. So that was part of the original promise of NAFTA. On the question of, of minimum wage, I would agree with Dan. It would not be my first choice of something to ask Mexico to, 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 to put that in the NAFTA. It's interesting, though, that when Japan joined the GATT in the 1950s, the United States asked J Japan to establish a minimum wage in, in order to get into the GATT. So there's so, some precedent for, for this sort of thing. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus on minimum wages. If I were picking one labor provision to install in the NAFTA, I would say that all three countries have to uh, ratify and enforce the International Labor Organization conventions on 
the right to organize and bargain collectively, uh, uh, Convention 97, Convention 87. That treaty from the ILO has been on the U.S. Senate treaty calendar, sitting there waiting for a hearing since 1949. So I would like to see the United States ratify that, and I think that ought to be a requirement of the NAFTA. So uh, I wanted to respond. Uh, it was probably not understood, uh, but what I said was not that NAFTA should establish a minimum wage for countries. Uh, I think what the labor provision should maintain is uh, an informal mechanism to make sure that countries comply with those standards. The current TPP standards are the, the ILO declaration, uh, the four uh, or five uh, labor standards that include freedom of association of collective bargaining, a prohibition against forced labor and child labor. That if you ensure that a country complies with those standards, and by the way, this is not an imposition on Mexico. Mexico has more than those standards in its own legislation. It has a living wage requirement in its own constitution and its federal labor law. So the question is, how do you make those enforceable? And one key part that is missing in the current scenario in Mexico, we've heard from Maria and others that the wages are really depressed in Mexico. One key reason for that is that capital and labor don't bargain freely. And so how to establish those wages has to be the result of much better conditions for workers to be able to demand better wages and working conditions. I think NAFTA can play a role there. One more question for, for Chris. Mm -hmm. um, re related to that, what, I mean, what, what do you think, you've studied this, uh, could be Mexico's priorities, Canada's priorities for NAFTA 2.0, other than okay. do no harm? Uh, what, what's on the agenda for them? But that's it. I mean, honestly, <laughs> honestly, that's it. I mean, we need to, Mexico, one of Mexico's strategies is to come in with a propositive agenda that deepens regional integration, that expands export opportunities, that strengthens North American competitiveness. But we should just understand the primary reason that Mexico comes in with that propositive agenda, and Canada, frankly, comes in with a similar, albeit somewhat different, propositive agenda, is so that they're not standing on the defense the entire time during the negotiations, right? So it's part of their negotiating strategy is to put on the table a series of things that could be, you know, wins for win-win-win is the idea of them, right? So that they're not sitting there on defense all the time. Now, what, it, what the, the do no harm sort of principle originally meant for, especially for business in the U.S., I mean, that's where that, that concept came from, do no harm, we've got this good agreement, let's keep it was follow the modernization agenda. All the things we talked about, you know, bring in digital commerce, a lot of the stuff that comes from TPP, you know, to work on trade facilitation. And, and frankly, that's all, that's all going just fine in the negotiation. There is a modernization part of the negotiation that's working. It's just that the other part of the negotiation that's centered around this principle of reducing the US deficit with Mexico in particular, has run off the rails, right? Because the United States is asking for a series of things that run directly into Canada and Mexico's number one priority, which is maintaining market access, mm. deepening the agreement rather than receding on principles in the agreement. I mean, I think where that leaves us is that that do no harm needs to mean something a bit different now, right? Where we're at today in the negotiation. What do no harm today means is taking the proposals that were put on the table, because those proposals from the US, the tough ones, the things on a sunset clause, rules of origin, maybe dispute resolution. I mean, what those are is they're either poison pills, as you sort of suggested, some people have suggested earlier, meant to give the United States an excuse to walk away from the negotiations and not be a part of NAFTA anymore, let Trump withdraw from the agreement, or they're an opening salvo mm -hmm. in a negotiation, right? And there will be space to move on them. 
So we've got to hope that that second one is the case, right? Because I think all of us are in agreement here on the, on the, the days that you know, we want NAFTA to remain, and US business certainly wants it to remain. Mexico and Canada certainly want it to, to exist. And so how do you take those proposals from the United States and turn them into something that does no harm, right? I mean, that's the job of everyone right now, is to find some tweaks that allow the president to say that he's met his campaign promises, to fight on behalf of American workers, to work to reduce the deficit without actually eroding the benefits of NAFTA that we've all come to rely on as three countries. That, that's what the new do no harm needs to mean, is doing that, that judo, taking that energy that's against NAFTA and flipping it. I mean, that's, that's everyone's job who's a supporter of NAFTA right now. And that's a really tough task. I mean, don't get me wrong, that's a tough task. But you can imagine some things. I mean, you can imagine a sunset provision that doesn't automatically end, but instead is a call for review, including, th you know, throw in there something about the deficit. We can review the deficits and try to look at unfair trade practices every so many years, as long as it doesn't mean an automatic cutoff for NAFTA. Honestly, I think we can have a conversation about rules of origin. I don't know that a national content requirement is something that Canada or Mexico can subscribe to. But the truth is, is that there already is a lot of US content in you know, everything that's produced in North America because the United States is 10 times larger than the size of the economy of either of its neighbors. We can be creative on these things. So as long as these aren't truly poison pills, but rather an opening salvo, the new do no harm is flipping those into realistic proposals that we can, that we can live with. Fair enough. We, we, we started a little late because the last session ran late and we have some cushion built in, is that right? So I think we can take two questions. I'd like them asked at the same time, and uh, we'll see how many people answer them. Okay, these two right here. <laughs> yeah. And during lunch, you'll have opportunities to ask questions of these others. Hello, my name is Sharon Freeman. I am um, a trade advisor since 1990, so I've reviewed all of the agreements. And in terms of the discussion about the, uh, uh, the negative uh, aspects of, of this agreement, um, in advising about trade, we have different um, uh, sectors and representatives on the, those sectors. I represent small business, but there's chemicals, aerospace, etc. But there's no committee for the people <laughs> that might have gotten harm. And so trade adjustment is all post facto. You had to have been negatively impacted. So my question to you is, uh, has anybody seen any sort of case study on trying to anticipate where some of the negative impacts would be by location or by sector, and then try to um, you know, predict and, and plan for what kinds of things we might be able to offer to those communities before those impacts actually happen. Because as you all know, it takes years to negotiate these agreements. So while we're studying all of these other things, can't we also be studying that? And have specifically then, have any of you seen any such best case examples on how to anticipate which parts of the society will have a negative impact and then what we could possibly do about that. And that's some vocational training, obviously, but it's a whole lot of things. For that question, let's, let's get this question. To
Thanks very much. I'm uh, Joris Larek. I'm a Fulbright Fellow at Johns Hopkins Science on sabbatical from uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands. On judo moves and, and no harm, uh, let me ask you, I'd be really interested what you and your fellow panelists think of, of something that worked quite well, seems to have worked quite well uh, in Europe, uh, both as a deal with Canada and with Ukraine. And the magic wand here was a joint interpretative declaration. So, and it was you know, to resolve the last political hurdle. It sounds always a bit silly to trade experts and lawyers because you don't change the agreement. You restate certain things that are already in there, but it addresses misconceptions that the public has um, about it. And in both cases, that did the trick. Um, NAFTA, I could imagine it's something, again, how you restate and a dozen more times as a right to regulate. It doesn't inhibit sovereignty too much. It uh, <laughs> doesn't fling open the doors to, to immigration. Things that maybe already have been obvious to people in this room, trade experts and the like, but not to the public. And I just want to point out one more quick thing with the Netherlands. Uh, and our prime minister, uh, he, he faced both massive populist opposition or challenge from the left and the right, and a referendum, the result of which was, don't, we don't want the Ukraine agreement. And I think this was the, probably the ultimate judo move. He said, okay, I'll take your concerns on board. The agreement doesn't really need to be changed, but let me put this all into this interpretive statement and let's go ahead, and it seems to have worked. Anybody want to start? Well, I think both are, both are good questions. Uh, we actually did. Uh, one of the few things the NAFTA Commission ever did uh, was to have a restatement in effect on NAFTA Chapter 11. Uh, it was done early in the history of NAFTA. But see, the, the absence of the NAFTA institutions makes it hard to do the sort of normative fixes that you're uh, suggesting. One of the important interest groups in the United States that supported NAFTA in part a lot of them were the environmental NGOs. And they were brought on board because of the NAFTA environmental side agreement and the other provisions in the NAFTA. They've been absent from this today. We've, we've lost the environmental community as part of the, cons the, the majority consensus for trade. And I think that's, that's, un that's unfortunate. And this administration is not one to bring back the environmentalists, I don't think. But in the long run, that's something that we need to, to do. On the other question, anticipatory exercises. The, the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program is passed in 1974. It had a program for workers, for firms, and for communities. And I worked a bit on this community effort during the Carter administration. And there were a lot of good ideas on how assistance to the communities could help anticipate dislocations and have programs in place uh, when they're needed. Unfortunately, when President Reagan came in, one of the things that he pushed for is to abolish the Community Adjustment Assistance Program. So that was abolished in 1981. And I think as, as a result, our adjustment assistance has been far less dynamic and effective than it could have been. Let me just address the question about anticipating adjustments. I mean, in, in a way, it's no mystery. We're in a broad trend of labor-intensive industries, lower-skilled jobs migrating overseas. And that primarily isn't a trade story, it's a technology story. Uh, and so uh, it isn't a question of, oh, we're going to sign this agreement and these industries will be affected. We, we sort of know what the future is because it's unfolding every day. Uh, you know, just to put it in perspective, if you take even the most pessimistic uh, claims about NAFTA, let's say it displaced 600,000 American workers or something like that, well, first off, that's spread over 20 years. It's about 30,000 workers a year on average, probably more front-loaded. 
but you know, we're in a dynamic economy where something like two million jobs are disappearing every month. <laughs> two point something are being created, so we have net job growth. We have two to 300,000 people lining up every week for unemployment insurance. They're, they've lost their job for some reason that they're not responsible for. So the NAFTA displacement's just a, a trickle in this broader job churn that's overall a healthy part of our economy. That's how our economy advances. So my point is, we don't need to examine particular trade agreements or even trade generally. It's, a, it's a, an economy-wide phenomenon. And what we need to do, it's, a, it's, a, and it's an important list, and I could go on, but we need to improve K through 12 education. We need job retraining. We need more flexible labor markets so that people can move from one place to another. We need to get rid of government incentives. The opioid crisis is part of it. People can't get jobs because they can't pass a drug test. You can't write these into a trade agreement to fix. It's got to be a domestic policy uh, approach. Damn. Okay. No, um, a quick comment. Um, if the U.S. were to withdraw from NAFTA, uh, at least they, would, they should have an impact assessment on the table uh, about what may happen, and I haven't seen any. Um, so I, I leave it there. So I would say on the anticipating potential negative effects, actually, I, I agree with you, Dan, that, that it would be better to think about this in more universal terms about what could be done for workers that have lost their jobs and how they might be reintegrated, including training, but also, of course, earlier education. Uh, sometimes I, I experience this dissonance where I hear you know, the story about trade and its effects in the United States. Uh, of course, they're hard to uh, separate from the effects of technology, but I think we need to recognize the enormous discontent that we're seeing translated not only in the proposals of the Trump administration, but in the positions of the Democratic candidates in the campaign. And so I think that one way to deal with these uh, concerns would be going in that direction. And so in that, I actually would agree with, with Dan. On the Judo move, uh, I'm a little hesitant to hold Europe as an example of success, uh, <laughs> particularly because it seems to me that a lot of the grievances in Europe at the moment with the nationalist parties have to do with a democratic deficit that is perceived to have grown as some countries resisted some of what was proposed at the European level and nevertheless Europe charged on, uh, including you know, with the European constitution that, that was then changed into a new treaty. And so it seems like you know, maybe it would be better to address these concerns more seriously. I, I, I think that they could be addressed, and, you know, whether we call that a Udo move or, or something else, uh, doesn't really matter that much. As, as long as we address them, not only gloss over them, because then we run the risk that they will come back uh, with greater force. On, on the first question, you know, the uh, Ted Alden has a book, Failure to Adjust, mm -hmm. which has an interesting history of the 1954 uh, Randall Commission, uh, which was where it involved business and labor. And the U.S. steelworkers said at that time, they made the proposal, we'll agree to zero tariffs, we'll agree to buy America, uh, to get rid, get, getting rid of buy America in exchange for exactly the kinds of preventative community-wide community adjustment that you're talking about. Um, so there is 
I don't know if there's a study attached to it, but there was at least a proposal on the table. Um, you know, I think I, I sort of tend to agree with what other folks have said. You know, there's, there's a lot of reasons people are getting displaced now. So to have one that's sort of so tightly linked to trade, although I understand the political logic of it, uh, I don't know that it makes for particularly good policy. So just sort of have general adjustment assistance for, for people regardless of what the, what the cause is. I would say on the judo move, you know, uh, a tried and true judo move in the past has been do more enforcement. Uh, you know, and I think we're seeing a little bit of that with the administration now. You know, last week or the week before, they announced the first ever application of the, the Peru environmental uh, uh, trade rules. So they actually announced that, you know, they were going to be they were going to be taking action under there to cut down on, on illegal timber. Um, I haven't seen a lot of, uh, I don't know if that's, if that's getting a lot of notice, but it certainly attracted my notice. It's, you know, a very historic uh, first use of, of, of these tools. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of trade enforcement tools out there, and the more you use them, the more you can sort of uh, uh, split off some of, the, some of the concerns that people have. Yeah. Just very quickly, um, I think we should have a North American workforce development dialogue. Uh, if we build things together, if our manufacturing industries are integrated, let's anticipate the needs of workforce. And so that works on both sides because it's beneficial for producers because there's workforce challenges on that side too, skills gaps, manufacturing jobs that go unfilled, and also can deal with some of these adjustment challenges that come as industries morph over time due to multiple reasons, as we admitted. There are some best practices out there from other countries. I'm not an expert in all of them, but I think in Denmark, for example, they do counseling whenever a factory is going to close so that you're in there at the factory while people are still on the job, beginning that process of helping transition. We could definitely get in a little bit earlier than we do right now uh, in that sense. And then on, on the statement, I mean, I just think at this point, we have this political challenge that's a lot bigger to fix than a political statement can do. Uh, I don't think that you can, I mean, essentially what you're asking for is you're asking the same person who came out and said that NAFTA was the worst trade agreement ever to, without changing the agreement, come out and say it's the best deal ever. <laughs> I don't see that happening. We need to have him, we need to have him do just <laughs> that. <laughs> I, I don't. I think we, we need to have him do just that, but he needs to have some cover to make that move, right? We need to give him some cover to make that move. Something has to, they don't have to be perfect fixes. Yeah. They don't even have to fix the real problems, but something has to happen in that interim period to allow that transition to happen. I mean, the headline cannot read. When the early draft of the U.S. negotiating objectives came out and the headlines in the Wall Street Journal read, you know, NAFTA update light, uh, mostly taken from TPP. You think the president liked those headlines? No, of course he didn't. And he can't have those headlines. He needs headlines that we're reading today. NAFTA's on the line, doom and gloom, world's about to end. And then I saved the day and we got a good deal, right? Let's get, let's, let's finish that transition. But I think we need more than just a, a restatement of NAFTA's really good to, to get us there. We, we may need to consult the, the North Korean press to figure out how to, how to, how to craft the <laughs> right headline. Uh, anyway, I think we're out of time. We've covered a lot of ground. I'm sure your stomachs are growling. Uh, we're going to have lunch upstairs, one floor up. But please help me uh, thank this excellent panel. Thank you.